Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, I hope you're well, I hope you've had a good week. Uh, The sun is finally shining here, which is such a flipping relief, having had weeks and weeks of miserable rain pretty much the whole of May and latter part of April so uh, hopefully things are on the way towards improving from a weather point of view. So uh, this week what have we got in store? So this week I shall be interviewing uh, Scott Walker. Scott and I were in the same department in the Metropolitan Police uh, New Scotland Yard albeit at slightly different times uh, Metropolitan Police Special Branch and that was involved in looking at national security issues and investigating terrorism in the UK. So Scott has got some really interesting stuff to talk about, but it's more about what he did after he left that counterterrorism national security world, where he moved into the area of kidnap. Uh, Kidnap and extortion in policing language, we call it K&E. Uh, So Scott became something of an expert around managing kidnaps and did many hundreds of those in uh, Scotland Yard, working for Scotland Yard. Um, He then left the police and went into the corporate world where he was employed to travel frequently all over the world to negotiate the release of people who had been taken hostage by uh, a range of different groups. It could be organised crime, it could have been terrorist organisations, all sorts of different people. So Scott's going to talk all about that, and um, no doubt whatsoever it's going to be really, really interesting. And I must admit, it's not something I know a huge amount about. I know more probably about the police side of things, but I don't really know very much about the corporate side of kidnaps. So really looking forward to hearing all about that. But before I go into that interview with Scott... It's probably worth just going back over one or two things that have grabbed the headlines in the last seven days, just to sort of help you understand how things work uh, in the police and what will be going on sort of behind the scenes. So the thing I want to talk about today is the very sad attack, the shooting of 27-year-old Sasha Johnson, who is a Black Lives Matters activist in uh, Peckham in the early hours of Sunday morning. Um, I just think this kind of symbolises so many things that have gone really badly wrong 
not just in British society, but in law enforcement and public safety. It's, there's so many different issues here that this, this has raised. And um, so I'm just going to talk through one or two of them. So it's probably just worth explaining who Sasha is. So she came to prominence during the Black Lives Matters protests of 2020, uh, following on from the death of George Floyd in the USA. So the individuals and the groups that she was involved with uh, were very outspoken in terms of their uh, grievances that uh, the UK is a deeply racist society, that so many of the institutions, including policing, are inherently racist and was calling for all sorts of fairly radical changes to UK policing, government policy uh, and all sorts of other things. So when the news came through uh, on Monday that Sasha had been shot at a party in the early hours of Sunday morning, there was a predictable rush to make all sorts of assumptions about who had shot her or why they had shot her. And very quickly, there was a narrative being put out across multiple communication channels across social media that she had been deliberately targeted because of her activist activities and her views and the inference being that she'd been effectively taken out by someone who disagreed with her. And completely predictably, uh, Diane Abbott, who has uh, shown herself to be no friend of policing for many, many years, who is the Shadow Home Secretary, I'll just remind you of that, Shadow Home Secretary, tweeted on Monday, uh, black activist, I'll quote from her tweet, black activist Sasha Johnson in hospital in critical condition after sustaining a gunshot wound to the head. Nobody should have to potentially pay with their life because they stood up for racial justice. So there you go. You have a prominent politician who is effectively the shadow version of Priti Patel, Home Secretary responsible for policing, as well as immigration and various other functions coming out and saying or certainly inferring that Sasha had been effectively targeted because of her activism. So if you actually just think that through for a moment, it's really quite shocking. I think it's quite shocking anyway, that someone in her position could make such a potentially inflammatory comment, which I believe she was challenged for on, uh, I think it was LBC, uh, refused to apologise as far as I'm aware and certainly she hasn't done anything on her social media channels to sort of correct herself and then lo and behold um, the Metropolitan Police issue a statement yesterday that they are pursuing uh, a line of inquiry that shows that four black men entered that party uh, and one of them discharged a gun shooting Sasha in the head. So not only has Diane Abbott rushed to judgment on, on who shot her, but she said something that could potentially, potentially, in the current very febrile and overexcited political environment around these issues, could have sparked widespread disorder, rioting, uh, and all sorts of attacks on the police. So I'm not going to say anything more about the actual investigation into that because I don't know anything about it. 
And I certainly don't want to say anything that's going to cause the police any problems further on down the line in terms of their investigation. But, but I certainly hope that Sasha makes a speedy recovery and I wish the Metropolitan Police the very best with that investigation and hopefully we'll be able to get some individuals into custody soon and get some justice for Sasha. As for Diane Abbott, um, I'm not a political person at all. I'm no affiliation to any political party. But if anybody's wondering why there is no viable opposition to the Tory government at the moment, you might want to take a look at Diane Abbott and that might answer at least part of that question. So it's maybe worth just talking quickly about what happens in these types of very high profile investigations. So in policing language, something like this would be classed as a critical incident. So a critical incident in policing terms, I'll give you the definition, is defined as any incident where the effectiveness of the police response is likely to have a significant impact on the confidence of the victim, their family and or the community. So it's likely that in a situation like this, this would probably have been declared a critical incident very, very quickly. Uh, that would have been by the senior officer in charge of the force communications headquarters which is where they manage all of the incoming serious incidents on the 999 system. And then as soon as a critical incident has been declared, then there'll be a whole range of different priority actions that would be taken by the police officers on the ground, as well as those who are responsible for gathering intelligence and doing other functions in the background. Then in slightly slower time, possibly uh, the next morning, bearing in mind this happened in the early hours of the morning, so, so as soon as it becomes clear the nature of the high-profile incident that the police are actually dealing with, then a formal command structure will be set up to deal specifically with this, this issue as well as all of the other issues falling out of it. So in policing language, we talk about a gold-silver-bronze structure, so the gold commander will be a very senior police officer in the Met. I would imagine it would probably be somebody of commander or uh, deputy assistant commissioner rank. And they will have silver uh, leads uh, for all sorts of different functions. So one of those functions will be investigations. There'll be a silver commander for investigations. There'll be one for intelligence. There'll be one for community reassurance. It'll probably be someone who's a local chief superintendent on the ground. And there will be various other thematic functions that will be uh, carried out and carry out actions on behalf of the gold commander who sets the overall strategy. So the reason why something like this will be declared a critical incident and will probably uh, attract its own command structure is that the police know very well that someone like Sasha uh, is a prominent individual and that there will be immediately a rush to make all sorts of probably unfounded allegations as to who shot her and the consequences of that can be very very serious and, and it can be very quick uh, in terms of that activity taking place on the street. We can have a situation today where um, something can happen and then almost within minutes you can have disorder, uh, all sorts of wild rumours flying around on social media. So it's incredibly important that the police get a grip of something like this very, very quickly, get their messaging into the communities very quickly, uh, get hold of people who can potentially um, you know, calm things down if they see that there's evidence of 
people whipping up um, you know, a mob effectively, and that's exactly what Diane Abbott risked doing in this particular scenario. In that gold um, structure, it's very likely that there'll also be senior representatives from other agencies, such as local authority, individuals, members of independent advisory groups. Uh, that's people who come in who are sort of prominent members of the community who will sit in and help, try and help the police to understand exactly what's going on. So in this particular incident, it would appear that this is a criminal matter involving probably gangs feuding. And this is something that the police in uh, the big cities like London, Birmingham, Manchester, we deal with day in and day out, literally day in and day out. Um, and most of that activity centres around the drug markets uh, with inner city gangs feuding generally over territory, or it just could be over respect issues. Someone has disrespected someone else. And, and very often, unfortunately, they try to settle their differences using weapons, including firearms and knives, uh, causing all sorts of mayhem on the streets that the police then have to try and sort out. So there you go, a little bit of a uh, whistle-stop tour of critical incidents and gold, silver, bronze command structures for anyone who's interested. So now let's move into the interview with Scott Walker. Okay, uh, this morning, uh, everybody, I'm absolutely delighted to have Scott Walker on the podcast. Scott is an ex-colleague uh, of mine from the Metropolitan Police, albeit that we sort of, our paths crossed at slightly different times. But Scott, delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, do you want to just sort of briefly introduce yourself, I mean, who you are, what you do? Yeah, thanks very much, Ian. It's really great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, as you said, our paths cross probably many years ago in Special Branch, um, back in the Met Police. Uh, I did 16 years uh, at Scotland Yard, uh, primarily as a detective, before taking the venture into the big bad corporate world about five years ago. Wow, so um, so let me, let me just think about the chronology here. So I, I was in Special Branch between 1994 mm. and 2002. Um, so when did, so I think you possibly arrived maybe just as I was leaving, is that about right? Yeah, I was the the tranche that came in after 9-11. Right. I mean, jo joining Special Branch was the kind of career goal, even before I joined the police, actually. Semika just was really interested, interested in international affairs and politics and terrorism and all that kind of stuff. So it seemed a natural uh, career goal and a kind of a typical branch officer, really, but probation finished in the year 2002. So I think just as you were leaving, I was a young thrusting counter-terror cop in the making, really. Okay. So for anybody who's listening who doesn't really understand what Special Branch is, it doesn't kind of exist anymore, does it? It's It was dis disbanded. So Metropolitan Police Special Branch was uh, disbanded in 2006, I believe, uh, and it morphed into uh, what is now SO15 or Counter-Terrorist Command. And back in those days, as you know very well, uh, the counter-terrorism and national security policing world was sort of split into two distinct sides. One was Special Branch, which was where we worked, uh, which did kind of the intelligence side of things uh, around national security and, and counter-terrorism. And, uh, and then there was the detectives 
who investigated uh, specific acts of terrorism. And that was ESO 13, which is known to us as the anti-terrorist branch. Uh, so when a, when a bomb went off or there was a, some sort of uh, terrorist attack, then they would actually put the case together, investigate it, gather the evidence, the forensics, they take the statements and all of that stuff and actually take the job to court. Whereas, you know, we were very much in the uh, in the area of trying, I suppose, to stop that kind of stuff mm. from happening in the first place, wasn't it? So mm. um, so just to go back then, pre-police, what, what was it that kind of spurred you to want to join the police in the first place? Yeah, well, my cousin joined the West Mids Police because I'm from Birmingham originally. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And then typically didn't really do anything about it. But I worked as a barrister's clerk for about six years uh, after college. And you imagine day in, day out, reading all these case papers, both prosecution and defence, going to court with the barristers. Um, and it was just a real insight into what happened in that criminal world, really. And yeah, I just decided, hey, do you know what? Let's go for it. And I moved from Birmingham down to London in 1999. And yeah, never looked back. And so, yeah, I loved just, every single minute of it, really. Can I just say you hide your Bromley accent really well? It, yeah, I do, but have after you, a few beers, it to, does come out. It does come did, out. <laughs> did you have to go to uh, electrocution lessons to get rid of it? Yeah, yeah that as well. <laughs> So, um, yeah, because obviously I studied, I was at university in Birmingham and then mm. after sort of, uh, what was it, 13, 14 years in the Met, I then transferred up to the West Midlands back to Birmingham again. So I kind of went full circle. So I, I, I grew up in the posh part of uh, Birmingham, if that counts. Yeah, well, I, can, <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. So, um, so yeah, so you, so you joined the Met and where mm. did you, where were you first posted to? Yeah, I was posted to Lewisham. And I was like, where's Lewisham? And um, it was, as, as terms of a probationer first posting, it was great. You know, it's a busy South London borough. Uh, you know, you got Deptford and you cross at the, at the north all the way down to Catford and Downham and Bellingham towards the bottom. Uh, and it was a really busy but enjoyable time. And I think a lot of cops will get this in terms of their first posting is where they have some of the happiest memories. Mm -hmm. And even yes. now, over 20 years later, I still keep in contact. We still go several times a year, we'll go for a beer or a curry with people who I was on the first relief with, despite yeah. having maybe a dozen postings in between, really. Um, so yeah, yeah exactly. great baptism of fire that was. I know exactly what you mean. And I was South London as well. So I was Clapham Brixton and uh, I know exactly, I totally agree. It's uh, a period of your career that stays with you I suppose and uh, I've got so many happy memories of that time mm. it was just great fun and we worked really hard and uh, you know we dealt with some very very dangerous people and got into yep. all sorts of terrifying scripts and uh, stuff but it was great great fun so so yeah so um, so then coming to Special Branch um, so sorry just remind me what year did you land in Special Branch then 2002 well 2001 September 2001 9-11 attacks and then not long afterwards the the order came out and notices, you know, inviting people to apply for uh, SB. And it was a typical SB <laughs> entrance or selection process, as, as I'm sure you went through as well, where it was like an essay you had to submit as part of the application process. Then there was the exam with some weird and wonderful questions. Yeah. Then there was the interviews and the boards and all the other stuff. And so I actually landed, uh, yeah, it was spring 2002. Yeah. yeah, it was a very, very tough process to get in, wasn't it? Um, 
and I, and uh, it was exactly the same process whenever I joined. Probably you know more than ten years before. No, no, not quite ten. Just ninety four, wasn't it? So eight years before that, I suppose. But yeah. So um, you had to study a lot, didn't you? And it was the only it was the only part of the 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 Met Police or any police, as far as I'm aware, where you had to study for what was a very demanding exam just to get into the department. Yeah. And, and your your knowledge of current affairs, politics, mm. and the exam was so kind of uh, it was kind of really quirky, wasn't it? There was some, some. Uh, they expected a lot of knowledge across a large amount yeah. of life, didn't they? I, I remember one one question stood out. Um, I mean, there's like 400 people sat the exam in Simpson Hall at the old Hendon Training School, and I, th- I think about six of us got through in the end. Um, but one of the que- one, well, one of the question was like, who's the Prime Minister of Pakistan? And the next question was. The Teddy Tubbies and the Spice Girls have a race. <laughs> Who wins? And I'm like, what? And actually, it was at that time, it was for the number one single in the music charts. Listen to me, the music charts, see how old yeah. I am now, um, for, for that Christmas. And so, you know, it just made you think about, okay, yeah. what they're looking for here. So. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? In, in Special Bands, certainly back in those days, there was a expectation that you'd be able to speak to literally anyone. Yeah, uh, that you'd be able to hold your own in almost any company, whether that was a cabinet minister, whether it was um, a, a drug act, drug addict off the street, or a, it. You, or, you, a dr- you, you or a drug addicted cabinet minister. <laughs> <laughs> hey, two for one. Which is true, you know, from like the the A, the a squad as it was for the, the close protection. You know, those guys were the prime minister and all the other senior people in the country, as well as perhaps you could be running informants sources who could be drug addict, you know, living in a squat somewhere who's going to report on some extreme left wing or right wing uh, tendencies. So, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. So, uh, so yeah, so just just staying with Special Branch for a bit then, um, what, what was your kind of career? What did your career in Special Branch look like? Where did, which squads did you work on? Well, I remember, first of all, Roger Pierce, who was the commander at the time, very debonair, really lovely guy. He mm. just said, uh, this will be like a career like no other. You know, you'll pick up the Sunday papers and you'll read about jobs that you've been involved in but can't talk about. And he was true to his word. And then after our initial... Just, just on that one, just to pause yeah. there for a moment, Scott, yeah. just, to, just to caveat and reassure anyone who's listening and reassure any police officers who are listening, particularly senior police officers. On this podcast, I don't, you know, and, and we talked about this beforehand, didn't we? We don't discuss sort of confidential information or operational yeah. stuff. We just talk about things at a very high level so that's just a kind of a health warning or a reassurance I suppose so sorry carry on no no all really low level (laughs) all really low level based (laughs) stuff as well um so I got invited to join e-squad which Mm -hmm. was uh well as you know you said your podcast and your book around how the the branches divided up at the time but e-squad was basically international ops Mm -hmm. you know b-squad was dealt with the Irish Republican threat and the uh, the squads dealing with the domestic scene but for international and i got put on the rest of the world desk um, which primarily focused on the indian subcontinent um and um turk you know turkey and and that part of the world as well Mm -hmm. um yeah it was an interesting kind of um mixture of disciplines that the rest of the world desk had to deal with because you know again just to sort of explain um that you know there was big squads that were focused very much on sort of the the, the kind of live threats so back in the 90s you know the mm. biggest squad in the branch was b squad which is where i worked for many years which was around 
uh, Irish Republican terrorism. Uh, and then as 9-11, you know, we had 9-11 and then everything sort of the shift, the, the focus shifted very much towards mm. the Islamic fundamentalist extremist threat. Um, but the rest of the world desk was always a funny one, wasn't it? Because you would have yeah. these, these funny little um, uh, demonstrations springing up from nowhere in outside uh, the House of Parliament or in Whitehall or somewhere. Yeah. And it would be some very sort of quite um, obscure uh, political pressure group from mm. a from a, a small republic somewhere in Eastern Europe. And the rest of the world desk would be given, got these sort of like frantic phone calls from the local, yep. the local old bill saying, what the hell's going on here? Who are these people? Yep. Why are they waving placards and shouting and screaming, you know? Yeah, and it, it seems almost like quite trivial in a way if you look at it like that. But actually, there was one outside, uh, I think it was the Sri Lankan embassy, where, you know, somebody just set themselves alight, but self-immolation. Oh, you, you know, and then you got like the, the, the local duty inspector is like, what on earth is going on here? Who are these people? You know, Tamil Tigers and all this kind of stuff at the time. And you think, yeah. Um, so you need to know a lot about a lot, don't you? Well, it was just purely so you could give the best guest estimate as to what does this mean? Because the command yeah. on the ground, as you know, the one, okay, so what? What does this mean for me? How many troops do I need to position and where and uh, what's the level of threat, et cetera, yeah. et cetera? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So, so you did that for a yeah. while. Did um, that for a year. Then went over to ports. I had to do a penance at ports, <laughs> which was Waterloo. And that wasn't the most exciting, you know, checking passports. and But the saying that several times a week, you could hop on the Eurostar to Paris or Lille and check passports and eat a nice lunch on the way back. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a couple of really good, interesting stops of people who shouldn't have been traveling, who decided to have a go. Um, but then from there, really, the the big shift for me was then going on to S-Squad. Right. Which was the surveillance, which I think you also were yeah. involved in. That's right. Um, so you went, on, you went on to surveillance team then? Yeah, yeah. and that was just great fun. I, I mean, it wasn't a natural surveillance officer. Uh, yeah. it, it took a while to get into it for me, being perfectly honest. How, did you, like, did, how did you find the training? Because um, just to, again, just to explain, I was... A, you know, both Scott and I were both on special branch surveillance teams, albeit I was there before him. Um, and I, but I was a dedicated surveillance photographer, so I was the photographer on the team, otherwise known as a smudger. We called them mm. smudgers in those days, didn't we? I mm. dare say they probably are still called smudgers, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So, how did you find the training? It was intense. It's like anything, isn't it? You know, you just adapt to, and you focus on what's the outcome. Well, you know, I really wanted to join this team. You know, it's one of the, the best surveillance capabilities in the country. And you know what? It, it's quite a, an effort to get in. It's quite a, a strenuous selection and training process. But I loved it. Everything from the, you know, the foot surveillance, the advanced driving, you know, and even that on day one of joining the uh, the squad, uh, the DI came over and said, Scott, are you, uh, you advanced driver trained or shots? I went, no, Governor, no, I'd like to, but no, I'm just a, a, a bitty basic. He went, okay, well... Uh, be at Hendon tomorrow nine o'clock and then I did both the response and advanced and a covert blues and twos course for about eight weeks Bloody hell. back to back and then onto a shots course for two weeks I think it was firearms um, course. Yeah. yeah 
And I just, you know, I just come from stamping passports in Waterloo <laughs> into this. There was um, again yeah. the great baptism of fire. There. Yeah, no, you have to pinch yourself sometimes, don't you? And uh, I mean, I absolutely loved. It. I loved the training. The events training was was great fun. Bloody hard work though. Mm. Um, and the trainers. I don't know. If, I don't know how you find it, but we were trained by uh, a sort of a sister department. Um, yeah. So eleven, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and. I don't think they really liked um, Special Branch very no. much, and they there was a bit of sibling rivalry going on there, wasn't there? Um, yeah. And and they gave us a really hard time, and probably I can I can remember one horrible situation in my surveillance training where navigation was uh, not my strongest point, if I'm being honest. So whenever you're, when you're actually driving at high speed and then having to do the commentary and having to watch what's going on and pass all the information back on the radio and it's like prop, it's like massive multitasking, as you know, multitasking yeah. on steroids, isn't it? And, and then you've got the in instructor in the back of the car and we, we pulled up outside a uh, tube station. I think it was possibly, I think it might've been Wood Green or somewhere like that. Um, somewhere up North London anyway. And uh, the subject who, who was under surveillance, the, the kind of the the the, um, the stooge, I suppose, formed of a better word, went into an address, and the instructor said to me, "Where are we?" And I was like, uh, 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 uh. "And you know, you know, you've, you had we had to work from those horrible A4 sized geographies, yeah. the map books, mm. and and you used to have to give a uh, a six um, digit." Uh, map reference yeah. um direction of travel so you'd have to say we're on page 43 uh mm. alpha charlie mm. 64 subject is walking on the west footway of mm. such and such heading north and has now turned yeah. left left so that would be the type of information yeah. that they would expect wouldn't they yeah uh, and i and they said to me ian where are we and i was like uh uh um wait and ian ian where are we and i was like uh uh, uh and he goes if you don't fucking tell me where we fucking are <laughs> inside the next <laughs> five seconds, I'm going to bin you off this course. <laughs> yeah, was there like, was lots of pressure. <laughs> Unfortunately, I managed to sort of spit it out, but uh, oh, I was sweating, you know. There's, I mean, a lot of the pressure was self-imposed, though, as well. You know, you, there's, I remember one case where we took a, a suspected terrorist from North London up to a different part of the country, and you know, you, if if you miss a wrong turn, if you're trying to play catch up in the follow, and you miss the turning, yeah. and you go 140 miles an hour, and it's pouring down a rain, and you and you can hear the country getting faint, fainter and fainter and fainter. You're thinking, oh, and it takes about an hour to get back yeah. in the follow. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. but good then, fun though. And as a surveillance photographer, you know, obviously, you know, it was very much down to me to have to capture a lot of that evidence, either yeah. you know, in still and a still image of it or a video image. image. So the pressure on me sometimes on the smudges could be could be really intense, you know, because if the subject did something that was really critically important from an evidential point of view and you and you weren't there to mm. capture it, it was it was just a, it was professionally embarrassing. Yeah. You know? I mean, cause, you know, you can follow somebody all day, but then it's ultimately about getting intelligence for evidence, as you said. And as, as a smudger, that was obviously your main role. And if you're not in the right place at the right time, taking the right shot. You yeah, might as well stay at home. Exactly, and, uh, my sit, sit in front of the telly. Right, listen, let's move on from that then. So where did you go from after surveillance then? I then went into another world, the covert world of uh, source units. So I became a dedicated source handler okay. as part of the Homicide Command. Okay, so you left, you left Special Brunch then? I right? did, yeah. It, I think they'd just done the merger then, around about then. Um, and I'd spent... 
yeah, I spent a few years in, in SB by that point. I just wanted to change. And I'd taken the part one of the skippers. And so I just went out to, yeah, to go and work in a source unit, uh, which on the face of it was there designed to support murder investigations. But actually, I'd probably say 80% of all the intelligence we were getting from informants was everything from weapons importation, drugs, people mm -hmm. trafficking. It was a really interesting couple of years. Mm -hmm. And were you were you you were dealing face to face with with the uh, informants who, that are now? Uh, if any anybody watches Line of Duty, which is not me, by the way, um, <laughs> well, and they'll hear the, the term "chiz," won't they? Used a lot, so yeah, yeah. Covert human intelligence source, which in old informant, which in old agent, was an whatever. Informant. Yeah, that's right. So, did, were you dealing with them face to face? Then? Yeah, face to face. Um, either there could be a walk in, and. Uh, or somebody who would just get referred to us, and then we would arrange meetings. We did it over the phone, or we'd arrange to meet them face to face, and just obtain information from them, who would in turn get information from people who, you know, were doing things they shouldn't be doing. And then again, you're trying to get the informant to perhaps find out information that they may be slightly uncomfortable with, but you know mm. that it's going to be the missing piece of the jigsaw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's a real first introduction to really understanding what goes on in the mind of somebody, what, how you can influence and persuade people to do something that they may not particularly want to do. Right. And also the stresses and the risks uh, that, that come with that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, you know, getting a piece of inf information, some intelligence, passing it to an operational team, having sanitized mm -hmm. it, and then seeing an end result, whether or not it's an interdiction of a shipment coming in yeah. or some arrests, it, it's a great bit of satisfaction. So bearing in mind that you're working in the Homicide Command, I imagine you must have been dealing with some, occasionally, some very dangerous people. Yeah, absolutely. There's one, there's, one, there's one informant we met and you think, okay, all the SOPs, all the rules say about where you can meet, how you can do it, who needs to be there. And then you find yourself, A, that you have to control the meeting. I remember one time I found myself with another co-handler because we had to meet in pairs. We had to go to a different part of the country to meet this guy. And in the end, we're kind of thinking, well, I don't really want to go into his house, you know, to go and have a conversation with him because we don't know what's going to happen. So we had a conversation outside and this guy was serious, serious villain. And both me and my co-handler afterwards, we got back in the car and we're both thinking the same thing, almost if we wait for the sniper shot to take us out <laughs> somewhere in the middle of nowhere, having this conversation with this really dangerous uh, criminal who actually was was very good in terms of providing some key information. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's a what? It's not. It's not a world I've ever. It's, it's not a job I've ever done. Um, but but yeah, it's uh, very challenging and. Um, yeah, so you, so you went from that. Was that the last job you did? Oh, no, you went into no. K&E stuff then, obviously. Well, yeah, just, just I did the, the source handling. Then I went into a unit, like the, the source management unit, which was right. basically the policy and oversight unit for all CHIS management in the Met. Mm -hmm. uh, and I included training as well. So I ended up becoming an instructor on the handling and the control of the courses. And then fortunate to go overseas and deliver some of that training to other forces around the world um but it, it actually what i forgot to mention was during this time i took six or nine months out to go out to iraq and to do some work out there uh with the military as well some interrogation and tactical okay. questioning as well so that was like a little side side step okay 
So, yes, yeah, so it's really fascinating mixture and variety of things that you're involved in. So, so what sort of year are we talking about here when you're doing that kind of stuff? Okay, when it was, I went to Iraq 2004, 2005, so it was around the time of Stockwell. And again, that's a whole probably podcast in itself, really, the Stockwell shooting of John Charles de Menezes, mm -hmm. where it, it was my team at the time who took him away from the flats, from um, from the from his from the flat, and uh, I was actually off that day because I was, oh. I just come back from Iraq and I was having a bit of bit of leave, and then I see this thing unfold on TV, and it's like wow, all the days to take leave. Um, so. So that was 2004, 2005, yeah, and then into the source world, 2007, 2008, and then I went on promotion to back to Lucian again, and then from there to Greenwich, where then I started getting involved in the kidnap for ransom. Okay, type so, let's, so let's talk about that then. So you are, uh, I suppose, by any definition, an expert on kidnaps and uh, kid kidnap for ransom and kidnap for... So in, in police language, we call it K&E, don't we? Kidnap yeah. and extortion, don't yeah. we? Um, but in the sort of corporate side of things, it's sort of K&R, isn't it? So um, just before we talk about it, let, let's just, well, let's talk about your experience doing the kidnap stuff within the police. What sort of uh, types of jobs were you getting involved in? You know, what sort of training did you have to do? All that kind of stuff. Just sure. Sort of... Okay. Well, my role in the police was effectively to get that call. It was called a red DS role, basically. And I'll, I'll explain what the, the, the red centre side of things is in a moment. But effectively, you'd be on call in addition to your day job. And you get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning saying, from, from someone in the kidnap unit, the on-call duty officer saying, right, Joe Smith, his brother's been taken in North London. He's received a phone call. His brother's been taken and he wants £20,000. Otherwise, they're going to kill him. And most of the kidnaps, certainly within the policing capacity, generally are bad on bad. Drug deal, drug dealer on drug dealer, for example. Mm -hmm. So then I'd get in the car, blues and twos to wherever it was, wherever the, they used to call them the victim communicator, the person receiving the, the calls was, and it was about taking control of the phone and the communications between the family, as it usually was, and the kidnappers. Mm -hmm. And alongside myself, you'd have the, the red commander, basically, mm -hmm. the person who would be directing and the scripting of the calls. Okay. And in the background, though, as you can imagine, with the, with the, the UK or Western police force, they generally throw every resource they can Mm. Uh, helping and, and, and solving this so we're, so we're obviously we're, we won't for obvious reasons talk about anything to do around because there's obviously a lot of covert tactics used in these jobs yeah uh, and and that needs to remain uh, as yes. i'm sure you understand you know covert otherwise there's no point uh, you have yep. those tactics um but clearly as you say um whilst i whilst i didn't get involved in the red center side of things the way you've described i certainly in my last few years was involved in in a lot of authorities i suppose around yep. those sort of jobs so that surveillance authorities or um you know various other sort of covert tactics and what have you so mm. so yeah so so how long did you do that for i probably did that for about four years in the in the police uh the last four years or so maybe slightly long yeah about four years um and that was great i love that you know the the adrenaline and the satisfaction of you get alongside a family, you're there, you negotiate 
the release, but at the same time, obviously, even though the aim was always a safe and timely release of the hostage or the victim, mm-hmm. certainly from a policing perspective, there was invariably a follow-up prosecution and arrest of mm-hmm. the offenders. Um, and so, yeah, that was really, really satisfying. Where mm-hmm. actually, you're there, you've got, it's not like in the films. I remember one, um, it was a brother of the victim who got taken and we took him to this safe place to, to do the communications, the negotiations. And he, he walked in, he goes, where's all the TV screens? Where's all the monitors and the satellites and stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, no, mate, we're going to do, and I put a pen, some post-it notes, and a little recording <laughs> device with a mobile phone. I went, this is what's going to get your brother back. And he didn't believe it, but at first, between me and the uh, the Red Commander, we uh, we managed to convince him, and, yeah, we, we got the guy back in the end on that. Yeah, um, it's. I don't think um, it's. It's one of these areas of policing that doesn't really get very much publicity for all for very obvious reasons because of the nature of the people who the police are dealing with. They're mm. they're, they're gangsters, aren't they? They're members mm. of of organised crime groups, and it, it's a uh, a very very depressingly regular uh, yeah. occurrence, isn't it, in policing? Um, and uh, yeah. A, a lot of a lot of police time and effort is is put into sorting out, trying to sort out these fallouts between one criminal gang and another criminal gang, and uh, and as you know, the person who is the uh, offender or the suspect on a Monday is likely to be <laughs> yeah. the victim on a Wednesday <clears throat> or a Thursday. Yeah. Uh, and what it really comes down to, ultimately, as I'm sure you know, it's about murder suppression, isn't it? Yeah. So it's about trying to stop murders, um, mm. because because if we didn't do all this stuff, you would have many, many, many more murders than we mm. currently have, isn't that mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I probably saw more violence dished out from these low-level, low-level drug dealers, the kidnappings between those people, than I ever saw in the corporate world. You know, in the in the jungles of Nigeria or the Philippines or Mexico or the Middle East or whatever, you know, some really horrible torturing over over sometimes you'd be over a couple of hundred quid, mm. and the size of the demand was never an indicator of risk. Mm. So, the decision to leave the police. Talk me through that then, because obviously you're moving up to the point where you sort of jump ship into. Yeah, this is okay. We're 2015 now, and I, <laughs> and you probably call it. A, a midlife crisis, I don't know, but I just turned 40. I was working in the, it was called the Comfy Unit, which was basically the, the gateway or the clearinghouse between the security intelligence agencies and the police around passing information. And one of those roles was actually dealing with threats to life, as I know you dealt with as well, and kidnapping as well. And I pretty much enjoyed every single day in the police. And I've done 16 years at that point. And I thought, okay, I'm turning 40, I've had an absolute blast. I've done pretty much every role, apart from an SIA role, that I wanted to do in policing. Now, did you, if, did, I, you, if I, did, you a, did you get a sports car and a leather jacket as well? I, I did, yeah, I did, and uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, I'll come on to that in a second though. And uh, I thought, okay, if I want a second career, now's the time to do it, rather than wait till my 50s or, or whatever, and then struggle to get a, a, a foothold in the market. And also at the time, a few of the things kind of nudged me. You know, I was going through a divorce. 
uh, you know, tragically, you know, my mom committed suicide and all these things happen in a space of a few months. Oh, and, I, and I thought, you know, when things come together, it's like a yeah, perfect yeah. storm thinking, yeah. right, this is, this is the sign for me from the universe, call it what you will, yeah. that I need to go and do something different. Right. And I left, I left the Met on the Thursday, had him a warrant card. Um, and as, as you know, you, when you hand that over, it almost feels as if there's a piece of your identity oh, yeah. that, that you lose. And on the Monday, I started in the shiny corporate world. Oh, wow. So did you have a, an approach from someone from that world before you, presumably you, you didn't just sort of step into the unknown, you presumably had somewhere to go? Uh, yeah, I'd reached around actually to a couple of ex-police officers who were working in that field and did the usual mit for coffees and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember somebody in the kidnap unit in the Met said, oh, you'll never get into the private world doing that. It's a closed shop. It's full of ex-army officers doing it. And I thought, yeah, you're probably right, but I'm going to give it a go. And I did give it a go. And um, I remember at the end of the interview for, for the company to join, the director just went, you're an unknown quantity, Scott. You've got zero commercial experience, um, but we're going to take a chance on you. We like you and we want to, um, to give you a go. And... Mm. I was promised a detailed induction course into how the corporate world of KNR worked, but actually that fell by the wayside because in the first week there were three kidnappings coming in, one in the Philippines and two in Nigeria. And again, I said baptism of fire before, okay. it was very much thrown in the deep in there with that. So, so just, to, just for clarity then, your, your new employer once you left the police, was that was a dedicated um sort of global security organization that did it just do kidnap and ransom jobs or did it do the full range of <clears throat> corporate security yeah it was it was it was a basically a security and risk and crisis management company it was one of the top tier one companies in the world right. there's, there's only a couple of that the, the do that kind of work at that level with the breadth and the depth of, of the work and so i was extremely extremely fortunate and blessed to be offered the opportunity to do that and I learned so much in those first you know few months the learning curve was just so steep about how we you know how they did it and you know I'm sure we can go on to the differences between the two different worlds but yeah. um yeah it was a really good uh, yeah experience. so so just on that one then so we've already talked about the typical police type kidnap scenario which is as you say, criminal on criminal. Yeah, uh, it's it's not sort of you know extremely extremely rare, isn't it, in policing mm. to have a a kidnap of a um, you know a, a sort of a law abiding person. Uh, mm. You know, it does happen, as you know. You know, mm. maybe a you know somebody who who's got extreme wealth um, and is taken by yep. you know, a criminal gang or whatever. But generally speaking, it's criminal on criminal. So um, describe to me the typical, if there is such a thing, a typical corporate kidnapping. Okay. I think if I start by talking what the similarities are, just quickly, the main, the main similarity is, and this is you know, genuinely the main objective of both in the policing and the corporate world in any kind of kidnap is the safe and timely release of the hostage. And in anything else, is a byproduct. So yes, the police would absolutely want to go and prosecute somebody, 
but and that was probably one of the main differences then in the corporate world we wanted to get the person back but we were not interested in the slightest about investigating prosecuting uh the people who were doing this okay so just on that one then so let's say let's say you're in you're um being brought in to try and resolve uh, a kidnap of a industrialist in a west west yep. african country okay yep. um to what extent if at all would the local law enforcement agency be involved in that great question okay depending on the country we would sometimes work alongside the local law enforcement or the military and pass information and have these conversations and they'd be all part of the same crisis management team yet also in some of these countries it's the police that are doing the kidnapping right and in some countries it's actually illegal to negotiate and get involved in some countries you have to notify the authorities if if you're going to negotiate in a kidnap um, so it's quite a complex world fraught with <laughs> fraught with issues that you have to take uh, a decision on based on on the country and the context that you're dealing okay, with. Okay, so there's a risk assessment to be done there. Yeah. First of all, okay. So when you say go back to that point you made about it's the police doing the kidnapping. Yeah. Are we talking about police officers who are effectively working for organised crime gangs, or are we talking about a sort of extrajudicial? abduction of someone who is a bad person what, what are we talking about there's there's probably a bit of both maybe the former depending on you know certainly in places like latin america the former is certainly um pretty prevalent um although just to stress that that is not the norm it does happen and the norm will be people from a village somewhere you know or a group of criminals who want to make some relatively easy money, good money for that part of the world. And 90 odd, 99% of kidnapping victims uh, will be local nationals in that country. Very rarely is it an expat who gets taken. And the ones that do get taken generally will be the ones that make it into the news. Okay, so, so describe to me uh, your sort of typical customer so to speak for um who, who's up because somebody's paying you and your wages and <clears throat> of the people that you work with who, who's your typical yep. customer well there's, there's there's lots of information out there about how this works so i'm not kind of reading any trade secrets here at mm. all i mean a lot of it's down to insurance mm. you know the main insurance carriers in the market are aig and hiscox and a few others and they will underwrite so the the commercial kidnap for ransom business started decades ago when you had an underwriter, you had a, a broker, and then you had somebody who could do the, the kidnap response, the negotiation would come together. The, the, the broker would sell a policy, the underwriter would agree to cover it. And then if the worst did happen, the response consultant would go out and deal with it. Okay. And so in, in the commercial world, it's invariably linked to either direct engaged contracts with companies who don't take out that kind of insurance, or it is done through the insurers. So, and that, but the actual client itself, and I've probably covered every sector and industry going from your petrochemical and extraction type companies, all the way through to some manufacturing foodstuffs. And what about uh, NGOs, for example? So yeah, so, NGOs as well. So yeah, I'm, NGOs. I'm working for, say, Oxfam or yeah. Save the Children out in, in some sort of war-torn part yeah. of the world and one of my people gets abducted. 
are, are they going to be sort of given the same coverage i suppose the same protections okay. as, a, as a petrochemical company yeah that's an interesting question around ngos and um depending on the ngo depends on their approach they'll have to negotiating with kidnappers and it's a whole minefield and people can feel quite strongly around the ethical and the moral dilemma of negotiating with kidnappers mm. um and so depending on the basically we work for the client and the client would be the company or the family um even though we were retained by the insurance company actually there's a big firewall in place and we would work for the for the client um and we could be fully involved in that from advising the whole strategy, the negotiation, the financial strategy through to how you're going to drop the money and recover the hostages. Um, but with the NGOs, for example, some of them wouldn't want us front and centre helping them. So there mm -hmm. could be different ways of supporting right. them through that. I'm not sure if you can answer this question. It might be commercially sensitive, but um, in your experience, what percentage of the cases that you get involved in would result in a uh, ransom being paid? Okay, every single case I was involved in, a ransom was paid. Right, okay. And that's, you know, either case managed, I, I was going overseeing the, the, the guys on the ground or actually involved in it myself on the ground, you know, hundreds of cases and, at the end of the day, it's, it's a business transaction. Now, I know for the family, it's not seen like that, and I get that, which is where the empathy comes in, where you, you've got to make sure that you're aware of those sensitivities. But at the end of the day, the kidnappers don't really want to hurt the hostages because they want to get paid. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a trade-off. They've got something we want, the hostages, and we've got something they want, which is money. Mm -hmm. And then there's a dance that goes on between the two of us as to, okay, well, how much are we going to pay you and when are you going to release the hostages? So I suppose the, the, the question that, you know, is most sort of front and centre in my mind is that the most obvious argument against all of this is that the more that this goes on, the more lucrative that business model becomes for a criminal gang. And therefore that increases the likelihood of people being kidnapped, which I suppose is the argument for making these types of transactions illegal <clears throat> in some countries. Every country has a different approach to this, don't they? They do. There's two points to this, really. The first one is by having a professional, a response consultant, a negotiator going in to support the client, it means that inflated and unreasonable amounts are not paid. So rather than a washing West Africa with millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, actually we can take a zero, a couple of zeros off that. Right. Okay. And, and so that's that. So it's actually trying to keep a lid on the market. And if we just say, hey, we're not going to negotiate, we're not going to pay, that's all very well and good, but it's not quite straightforward with that because everybody then needs to agree to that. Mm -hmm. And somebody somewhere will always want to, pay you know it could be a family member in order to get somebody back mm -hmm. and that that leads me to my second point is if it's your son or daughter or wife or husband or brother or sister or good friend that gets taken mm -hmm. funny enough it focuses the mind on the on the 
moral dilemma do you pay or don't you pay and just to kind of emphasize here there's a yeah. big difference between terrorist kidnappings yeah. and criminal inverted commas yeah, and absolutely we don't we don't we don't pay criminal uh the uk certainly don't other countries say they don't but they do but we don't whereas as far as the criminal you, side you of things say we go, do you mean uk government UK, yeah uk plc okay. um yeah. and if we did we will get prosecuted under various terrorism act legislations um and nobody really wants to yeah, to yeah. so in terms of uh the, the sort of geographies that you do you have to f you physically go abroad to deal with these do you or could you deal with them from the uk D depends um and interesting last year during covid uh, it was a, a repeat client, a repeat customer who had um, who's involved in two separate cases. And the first one it was done remotely, and the second one, with the lockdown restrictions lifted, we're able to fly into the country, and either the country itself or to a neighbouring country where you can, in a safe space, have form a crisis or an incident management team with the key decision makers around there where you can work out a strategy and a plan of action about how you're going to resolve this. Mm -hmm. And like anything, often face-to-face -face is better than over mm -hmm. a screen. And you, you can read the, the mood music um, and the body language and the tone far better when you're in the room with the key decision makers mm -hmm. and compared to when you're just on the other end of the phone. Yeah. And another sort of question really in my head is, how confident can you be when you hand money over to someone that that the victim yep. isn't in cahoots with the hostage taker? In yep. other words, in other words, they're going to get a twenty five percent cut of of that. Um, yeah, that that does happen. It's very rare, certainly in my experience. And you can generally tell early on. There's some signs that you think, Do you know what, this doesn't make sense here. You know the. And then sometimes you'll see photos that the kidnappers will send through of maybe the hostages in some kind of really traumatic stress position, bound and blooded. And then, but then when you start studying the photos or the footage really closely, you think, no, this is staged. Mm. And you generally get a sixth sense. I mean, I couldn't say to you, okay, if you see this, 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 and this, you know it's gonna be uh, a scam. But you generally, through collective experience across mm. the team, um, can kind of work out yeah. if someone's in codes. Because in, in policing, as you get, like, without disclosing, uh, you know, confidential or covert sort of tactics, um, in policing, we've got uh, access to a whole range of different material and um, that, that we're able to assess, make that assessment. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, and this, is, this isn't any, I'm just not disclosing anything sensitive here particularly, but, you know, if there's been communication at any stage between the uh, the victim and the, uh, you know, in, in, which is appears to be suspicious, that automatically you'd think, okay, there's something not quite right yeah. here, you know. But um, I take it you just have to base your assessment on experience and you know, sort of case by case basis, I suppose. And the context, you know, if it's a fishing company and one of, and a couple of the guys on board the boat have been taken inland into the jungle somewhere. And you think there's nothing linking the kidnapping group who are from thousands of miles away, hundreds of miles away, and this particular ship. Yeah, there could be an inside job in the port, for example, where the where the ship comes in, for example, passing information to the kidnappers. But in terms of the actual cahoots, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, mm. it's pretty obvious straight away.
and so the, the the ones are part of the world that that is sort of particularly infamous for all of this would be Somalia in terms of the Somalia sort of piracy issue. Is that something you get involved in? Yeah, again, that it comes under the special risks, which is uh, kidnapping or marine-based kidnapping, which is piracy, but without taking the ships. Because a few years ago, piracy would have, was at its height, and the pirates would take the ship as well and and dump dump the ship. Um, whereas now, they, what happens is they'll just go on board the ships, leave some of the crew on board so they can steer the ship, and then just take a handful of the, the crew hostage into the jungle or where it is they're going. And did you have to learn how to speak pirate language? <laughs> Sorry, that was uh, childish, but anyway, I'll move on. I mean, that's fascinating. We could talk all day about that, but just mindful of the time. So where do you see, what's sort of, what's next for you? Are you going to stay in this world for for the foreseeable future? Yeah, but possibly, um, I've just realised over time that some of the, from the experience and from, and from what I've seen and heard, it's, it's, it's understanding what makes people think, feel and do what they do. And, and what did the really successful teams and individuals do in these cases that made them succeed where others maybe made, made really bad decisions and bad calls. So it's about, I'm just growing my um, consulting and coaching business uh, around leadership and decision-making and developing a resilient mindset. And ultimately it comes down to having an awareness of your emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. how you can connect and communicate with people in times of stress. And are you are you still involved in the in the kidnap side of things or have you moved away from that now? Uh, I've moved away from that now. Right, okay. So what, what would you say your kind of key, I don't know, takeaways would be? It's just useful. I always like to look at look at people's experiences and say, okay, so what have you learned from all of that? Um, mm. you know, to, to help you or to help other people, I suppose. Yeah, I, I'd say it's focusing on what you you can control. And I'll give an example, you know, you're sat across a table, you've got some senior executives, you've got maybe got some family members, you've got some law enforcement or other agencies there, and tensions are absolutely astronomically high and tense. And then the kidnappers come on the phone and there's either a mock execution or there's really serious threats. People are crying and shouting and angry and you're there and you need to be the calm in the storm. Mm. But you can apply that to any aspect of your personal, you know, your private life as well. And it's about understanding between that stimulus, that situation you find yourself in, and the response is a tiny gap. Mm. And Viktor Frankl, the, the Auschwitz survivor, talked about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And the only thing we can ever control in the world is that gap. Mm and how we respond rather than react. Mm -hmm. And that just comes down to, you know, the amygdala kicks in at the base of our spine and we fight, flight or freeze. And it's about learning to control that two million year old brain reaction, mm -hmm. particularly when you're faced with conflict or stress or challenge or significant change or uncertainty. It's really, it's really interesting, isn't it? There's so many, so many things that I think a career or a long time in the police teaches you, doesn't it? Um, you, you, there's not many things that you get for, sort of particularly stressed about <laughs> yeah. because because you've seen 
pretty much the worst of humanity and you, you've been in some pretty pretty horrific situations and yeah it's a it's a it's a I would I'd recommend anyone you know I know this, this sounds like a ridiculous recruiting pitch for the police but I would say to anyone if if you've ever thought about what it'd be like to be in the police uh, or do something that's really valuable not just for yourself but for the wider society then just go ahead and do it you know and um you know, even if that's being a special constable or something, I think there's so much, there's so many skills in the police aren't there. There's so many mm. people with so many stories to tell, and um, and it's a job like no other, is it? I mean, I take it. I mean, obviously, once you left after 16 years, do you do you ever regret any of your time in the police? Uh, no, I enjoyed every single day, and I wanted to leave on a high rather than some bitter, twisted old sweat who was hanging on for dear life for his pension. <laughs> but saying that. I would do it all over again and I would recommend it to anyone, you know, with my kids as well. If they said, Hey, I'm thinking about joining the police dad, I'll be like, go for it because what you know about policing and what you'd experience is going to be different to me, but it's been like that for over a hundred years. Yeah. And as you know, the title of your podcast indicates they've been talking about that, that for the job since yeah. the very first day of policing. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And that's an, an interesting point that um, just to take a, the conversation in a slightly different direction. I mean, although, my podcast and the book is Tango Juliet Foxtrot, which I've already explained is, is sort of a, a very, very long-standing acronym for the job's fucked. Um, I genuinely don't believe it is. Uh, I don't think it ever will be. I think there's enough good people who will um, join and because they want to make a difference and mm -hmm. because they want to help people and, and stop bad things from happening. But, you know, what's, what are your kind of observations now that you've left the place or... What are you, what are you, because I'm sure you still take an interest in things. Um, yep. What are your observations in terms of what's been going on in the last, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years? Yeah, that's a, another great question. I, th I think policing has always been almost like the punch bag of society as well. And, and I think it's probably time for a complete overhaul of what the policing is and what it isn't. I'm not saying necessarily a royal commission, but a bit like the covenant that the public have with the military I think there's something needed there for policing now um, but I think ultimately it comes down to there just seems to be a collective lack of really effective leadership across policing and I think mm -hmm. you mentioned it the other day in one of your posts around just communicating you know there's a senior police leader who was speaking about the increase in 20,000 cops and he's thinking unless our leaders have been really clear in their vision and what, how they're going to inspire uh, not only the, 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 police, the police officers, but also the public, what hope do we have? Hmm. And I think there seems to be a lack of support from the top of an organisation for the guys doing the groundwork. Um, but saying that, there's some really inspirational, truly brilliant leaders in policing mm. but I think they get failed by the collective yeah it's system. not it's very very inconsistent isn't it and um I think a lot of those people in my experience and I totally agree with you there's some fantastic and inspirational leaders who've, who've got into those positions through hard graft and you know been able to bring people with them and communicate a clear vision of what it is that we're there to do but unfortunately there's an awful lot of people there who are career butterflies who don't really, don't really have the credibility of the people yeah. who they're leading. I th that's a really good point. 
I read somewhere they were described as blue flamers, people mm. who every role they get into, they're looking for the next one before mm. they've even bedded in, made a difference and seen the results of their, their efforts. Yeah. And I'm not judging those kind of police officers at all because, you know, for some part of my career, I was like that as well. You know, hungry, ambitious. And, you know, you look back and you shake your head thinking, what on earth was I thinking by making that decision or saying that? But I think, you know, collectively it comes down to, we touched on it a short while ago, the really good leaders have a real sensory acuity, that emotional intelligence about to understand their own emotions, understand others and having that awareness about how to adapt Mm. and how to lead effectively in a command and control style approach when it's needed you know in a firearms or public order situation Mm -hmm. as well as having the the ability to move along that leadership and communication spectrum to being able to sit down and really really i mean like properly listen and understand uh what other people are going through and their concerns yeah yeah, no, I totally agree, and it's just that flexibility of thinking and behaving. And one of my one of my next uh, guests on the podcast is going to be. I'm really looking forward to it actually because he used to be my old boss, as uh, Clive Burgess. He was uh, West Midlands Police Chief Superintendent and uh, ACC for a while before he retired, and uh, and he was very much of that. You know, he was very very uncompromising character um, mm. when he, when he had to be. Um, and could be quite, could be quite scary, and I'd say that to his face if he was here. But yeah. he could be quite quite a scary character. But but also, if someone was going through a really difficult period in their life, you know, he would sit and talk to them and close the door and spend time with them, and actually very very compassionate individual. Mm. And 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 that's what you want, isn't it? You don't want, mm. you know, it just needs to be that sort of ability to understand sit in another person's shoes and understand what's going on in their life, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's that cliche, isn't it? You know, first seek to understand before being understood. You know, get inside of the person's shoes and their mindset, understand what motivates this person. Mm. What's their map of the world? How are they interpreting things? Which is going to be completely different to mine, which is going to be completely different to yours. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to adapt and, as I said, bucket loads of empathy of, doesn't mean you're agreeing there's a people think empathy can be all soft and fluffy and weak but actually true empathy is when you can be quite challenging as well it can be because you know what i might not like you i may not agree with you but i can still demonstrate active listening mm-hmm. empathy build rapport and then crucially it comes on to i think the point you're alluding to there around it comes down to trust mm-hmm. trust-based influence if you mm-hmm. trust a leader or a colleague you know, that goes a long way, doesn't it? About yeah. It's going to influence your own behaviour and your own mindset as well. Definitely. Listen, I think that's a really good time to just wrap it up, Scott. Um, can I just say, this has been really fascinating. I've learned a lot. Um, so you've operated in a world that I've never experienced and I, I've no understanding of, and I definitely think I've got a little bit more understanding about it now, and I hope other people who are listening to this will do as well. So thank you ever so much for coming on and talking You're to welcome. me. Thank you. And, uh, and I wish you the very best of luck with your next sort of venture. And um, I'll keep in close touch with you and I shall watch your progress with great interest. No, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. It was really, really lovely chatting to Scott and... You know, we had a nice chat after the interview was finished um, about, you know, people that we used to work 
uh, with together and had a bit of a laugh and walk down memory lane and everything. I wish Scott the very, very best of luck with his new ventures. Um, I think he's clearly a very, very experienced guy, knows what he's doing, knows what he's talking about. So what I'll do just to help him out is uh, I'll put a link to his website in the podcast notes. So if you want to speak to him uh, regarding what he does, uh, his coaching and leadership training, and I believe he's also doing some speaking for Chartwell Speakers, I believe, uh, which is one of my other guests, Nick Bailey, who was the Novichok poisoning victim. Uh, he's also one of Chartwell Speakers. So, uh, so yeah, um, if you're interested in booking Scott to talk about kidnap and rant, kidnap for ransom or kidnap and extortion, then I'm sure Chartwell would be happy to help you. So just before I leave you, I uh, just want to go over a few of the lovely reviews that people have left regarding the podcast. Um, just wanted to say thank you very much to those people who have left those reviews. I was very touched um, by some of them. I'll just read a few of them out, actually. There's one here that was left earlier on a couple, about a week ago. Um, five stars. This is uh, by Mojo Joe. This is spot on. Second episode in, and so far it's absolutely spot on. If you're serious about understanding the why, the how, and the what, and the impact on human beings, listen in and switch on. Certainly not LOB. So LOB is police language. Uh, whenever we used to deal with something that was rubbish, they used to say to us, um, uh, what's the result to that incident you went to at Acacia Avenue or whatever? And we'd say it was LOB. Uh, and what that meant was it was a load of bollocks. Okay. Um, and there was an awful lot of that that we dealt with. There's one here from Mike, Mike Timoth, uh, five stars, uh, saying, As a civilian, Ian's podcast features a fascinating review of current police news, fascinating nuggets and insights, and a good dose of humour. Look forward to the next episode. So thank you, Mike, for that. Um, I'll just do one more here, not wanting to. Um, my wife took the piss out of me on this one. Uh, she thought it was hilarious. Um, honest, informative, provocative. Five stars. Having spent 30 years in the Met with many of the same experiences as Ian, he does an amazing job of conveying his passion for policing with frustration about where it's going wrong. If you really want to know what policing is about and what it should be about and have a smile along the way, then this is a great listen. Not least because he has a wonderful voice. Now, that's from Dickie R, and I think that's someone who's taking the piss personally. Um, so, Dickie, thank you for that. Um... No idea who you are, but I strongly suspect you're taking the piss there. All right, listen, I'll leave you to it. Thanks ever so much for listening, and I'll speak to you again next week. Bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.